This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, coming up, uh, we're going to be uh, airing a talk given by uh, a um, lawyer on uh, who's worked with uh, the those incarcerated at Guantanamo, uh, most of whom uh, have not been charged with anything, but just picked up off the street in their, uh, in their hometown or villages and uh, transported to Cuba. Um, and also he's the lead attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights lawsuit against the nationalists over the spying from the National Security Agency. So he spoke on campus. Uh, well, he actually spoke on campus, and then also he spoke at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Anaheim uh, in October, uh, earlier in October, October 6, I believe. Uh, so let's go to that uh, talk. Uh, his name is Shania um, Kadidao, uh, who's the lead attorney uh, at, the Senior, at the Center for Constitutional Rights based in New York. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today we're airing a talk given by a lead attorney of the NSA lawsuit, the lawsuit against national security agencies spying on Americans and on non-Americans either. Also. This is uh, the lawyer from the Center for Constitutional Rights, and his name is Shane Kadidao, who is a staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. He spoke in Anaheim on October 6, 2006, a week after Congress passed a new law that would make it much harder to defend people in Guantanamo, those incarcerated there. So he talks about Guantanamo and the NSA lawsuit. Well, Guantanamo, I suppose you, you folks probably know an awful lot about, um, uh, about the factual background there. Uh, the first time I encountered Guantanamo was actually in law school in 1991 um, when Michael Ratner, who's the president of the center, was a clinical faculty member um, and uh, Harold Coe, who's the dean of the, the law school at Yale now, was a professor of procedure. And uh, uh, there had been a coup in Haiti, and um, large numbers of people were fleeing by boat. And uh, the United States was interdicting them at sea, and uh, taking them not to, to Florida or someplace where they would have full asylum rights, but rather taking them to Guantanamo. Um, and uh, Guantanamo, as you know, is a place that the United States signed a permanent lease um, on with Cuba uh, when Cuba was a colony of the United States in the wake of the Spanish-American War in 1903. It's a, it's a mutual consent lease. Both sides have to consent in order for it to be broken. Um, so we basically have perpetual control over this area. The treaty says that we have um, complete uh, jurisdiction and control of it, meaning we can enforce our own criminal laws there. Um, but the treaty also says that Cuba maintains sovereignty. And because of that, the United States argued um, during the Haitian boat person crisis in 91 and 92 that Guantanamo really wasn't part of the United States. And so for that reason, um, any of the asylum laws and treaties, um, including, you know, sort of broadly subscribed international UN treaties um, about asylum rights, uh, didn't apply to people, to these Haitian refugees who had made landfall in Guantanamo rather than, you know, landing in Florida somewhere. Uh, that case eventually got mooted by President Clinton's um, sort of termination of the policy of interdiction and uh, a little bit of uh, restoration of political stability in Haiti. Um, but the lower courts had basically agreed with the government and said that, look, Guantanamo is a place that isn't part of the United States um, as, far as, uh, as far as the law is concerned. Um, even though the United States has complete control over the area. And so the government sort of filed this notion away. They had, the, you know, they had a pretty clear idea um, that there was a pretty good chance that the courts were going to say that Guantanamo wasn't part of the United States as far as the application of United States law went. Um, so, you know, come 9-11, um, uh, you know, November 14th, uh, the first week that I was um, working at the center, uh, the president issued a military tribunal order, basically signaling that um, this whole process was not going to be a criminal investigation. Rather, it was going to be, uh, a, you know, something that was run through, you know, the military justice system. And, and the response to 9-11 was not going to be a law enforcement response as it was to the Trade Center bombing in 1993, but rather it was going to be a military response. 
Um, you know, so we had a sense that Guantanamo was going to come back to haunt us, and, that, and sure enough, in January of 2002, they started moving prisoners there. Um, you know, a lot of them um, captured on the battlefield in Afghanistan, but really only about 150 of the first batch of five or 600. Um, uh, an equal number, probably more even, captured in western Pakistan. Um, uh, we, to give you examples of the circuitous route that some people um, took there, one of our initial four clients whose case went to the Supreme Court, um, a man named Mamdu Habib, was an Australian citizen. Um, he had flown from Australia to Pakistan in October 2001 looking for schools for his children. He wanted to send his kids to religious schools rather than the, the rough schools in the suburbs of Sydney where he lived. And um, at that point he was picked up by parties unknown, um, taken to Quetta, a little staging area near the Afghan border where the U.S. has a big military presence. And from there he was shipped off to Egypt, a country whose security services pervasively use torture. After six weeks of torture there, he was taken to Afghanistan and turned over to the United States, and they flew him um, on, a, on an Air Force jet uh, to Guantanamo. And so that's the circuitous route that he took. Um, so people were picked up in Zambia and taken to Guantanamo. Um, uh, there were six people picked up in Kosovo and taken to Guantanamo. It's really become a dumping ground for anyone anywhere in the world who's captured by anyone, and the United States suspects of some sort of link to terrorism. Now, you know, the initial reports um, in the media that you know, Rumsfeld and others gave were that these people were the worst of the worst. Um, and you know, factually, since no one had any access to the base and since the detainees didn't have any access to judicial process, uh, nobody knew any better. Um, there was no outside party to, um, to question what the military um, was saying about who these folks were. You know, in one account, uh, the military official, it might have even been Rumsfeld, said that these people had to be chained up you know, head to toe um, on the flights to Guantanamo because they were the sort of folks who would chew through the hydraulic cables in order to bring down the airplanes. Right? So, in the, uh, in the wake of the court process, obviously, we've learned a lot more factually about who these folks are. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we wanted to bring a case um, on behalf of them. We filed one. We lost really badly before a Clinton appointee judge in the district court. We lost worse than that in the D.C. Circuit um, before a bunch of Reagan appointees. And then, surprising everyone, in December 2003, the Supreme Court said that it would voluntarily take, um, accept review, grant certiorari. Um, to review the case. Um, immediately, the United States government started releasing detainees, and this was sort of a, an attempt to show a little bit of good faith that, you know, we're not locking these people up permanently without trial. It may be a place where the courts shouldn't intrude. It may be a place where you don't have any judicial rights, but we're not going to abuse that. We're going to let people go eventually. And so they let 150 people go, including um, two of our English clients. We had four clients in this first case that went up to the Supreme Court in 2004. Two were English citizens, um, Shafiq Rasool and, um, and Javed Iqbal. And then two were Australians, and David Hicks and, um, and uh, Mamdou Habib, uh, except for David Hicks, all of them have been released. Uh, and um, so, you know, the two Englishmen were released, and one of the things that they said to the media when they got out was that, um, you know, that there had been prostitutes hired by the military to parade through the camp and smear menstrual blood on people. Now, that sounded to me like post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't believe that something like that had happened for a second. Um, but then, um, you know, something interesting happened. The case was argued before the Supreme Court in April. A week later, a pair of other um, U.S. citizen enemy combatant cases were argued, Padilla and uh, Hamdi. And uh, during the oral argument in, um, in one of those two cases, uh, Justice Stevens asked the Deputy Solicitor General, you know, what can we do with enemy combatants? Can we just shoot them? Can we kill them? Um, and the Solicitor General said, you know, can we torture them? And the Deputy Solicitor General, now the Solicitor General, Paul Clement, said the United States doesn't do that. And then the next week, uh, the photographs from Abu Ghraib emerged. And we started to see that sexual humiliation techniques and nudity and things like that, you know, that somebody had basically decided at a pretty high level that these are things that uh, religious conservative Muslim men um, can't take. That psychologically, this is a way to break them. Um, and it, it sort of fits with the notion that Guantanamo itself is basically an interrogation camp and that the reason the government doesn't want to have judicial process there is because they want the detainees to become psychologically dependent on their interrogator. They want the interrogator to be the entire world to the detainee, um, for them to have no social relationship at all except for that one with the person who's asking the question so that they'll want to please that person and answer. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, I think, um, you know, goes a long way towards explaining it to some extent why, um, you know, why why we, we don't have, um, you know, a lot of people there who've been charged with anything. You know, in the first couple um, months, there were interviews with, you know, unnamed sources carried out by the Times, you know, people in the military who said, look, you know, these people are low level to no level. Most of them weren't fighting, they were running. 
um, there are a maximum of one dozen or two dozen that will ever be charged with anything, an estimate that turned out to be a little aggressive, actually, since there are only 10 people, I believe, being on the, the 14 who were just moved there, the high-level um, uh, detainees who are, who've been charged um, or designated for trial by military commission. All the rest are people who've been sort of swept up in some kind of, you know, massive sort of um, profiling sweep through Afghanistan and Western Pakistan and brought there um, and really, you know, essentially interrogated for years to see if they know anything. Um, it's a sort of, you know, means of operation whereby you sweep in a large number of people um, with no particular evidence to suspect them of having done anything and then while they're in detention you try to sort out the suspects from the, uh, from the people who may know something. Um, in any event, I, I think um, those Abu Ghraib photographs um, had, a, had an impact on what the Supreme Court um, uh, thought about this whole situation. And in any event, uh, you know, I, I sort of thought that we'd get the outcome we did um, on the day of the oral argument, which was a 6-3 decision, um, that basically um, you know, said that the, the detainees definitely had a right of access to federal courts. But what we were worried about was that the court was going to say, yes, you have a right of access, but the substantive rights you have are really minimal, um, that all you get is a military panel review, um, and that's enough. Um, that satisfies due process to the extent it applies, you know, outside of the territory of the United States. They didn't say that. Um, instead, all they said was, you have a right of access to the federal courts, and basically left it at that. But the other two um, enemy combatant cases involving U.S. citizens um, that were decided on the same day, um, they implied that a military panel process might be enough, that you might not need a full-fledged um, habeas proceeding in federal court um, to test the legality of, of someone's detention there, whether it was claimed to be as a prisoner of war or a war criminal slash terrorist or, or whatever else. Um, so the United States created these little military panels, um, combatant status review tribunals, they've been called, um, to, uh, to essentially give people some form of military process. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that the, the, you know, the, the, the really significant thing that happened after the, um, the, uh, the Supreme Court decision was two things, really. One, that our attorneys got to go down there and visit people. And the second thing is that these combatant status review tribunals were carried out, and it actually created a record, um, you know, sort of a transcript of what the military thought these folks had done. Um, to talk about that, that first, um, you know, what you've seen uh, in the records is, you know, people have managed to go through these. They've all been released, basically, as part of the, the habeas proceedings in district courts now, and they found that 87% of the people there uh, were not captured by the United States. And the U.S., you know, was leafletting throughout Afghanistan, saying, you know, look, we'll pay you $5,000 a head for anyone who was linked to the Taliban. That's enough to buy a tractor and livestock and feed your family for years. Um, this sort of thing. Now, of course, you know, anybody who wasn't Afghan, you know, who was Arab um, from one of the Gulf states or from Pakistan was pretty easily easy to pick out visually from the, you know, Afghan population, a very distinctive looking population. And, um, uh, you know, as one of our lawyers um, has said, uh, one of the, the law firm lawyers who's worked on these cases after um, the Supreme Court decision, uh, you know, basically being Arab in Afghanistan is like driving while black. It's um, something that immediately made you a terrorist suspect, and that's probably what happened with a lot of these folks. They were swept up by warlords, they were sold by villagers, um, you know, all for this bounty. Um, so looking at those military um, panel reviews, even the military panel reviews say that 55% of the people had committed no hostile act against the United States. Really, sort of an astonishing thing. So, not even really POWs, not people who had borne arms against the U.S. So, you know, that's been a really interesting thing. Uh, that's a consequence of the fact that we've had outside federal court review, that we factually have a sense of who these people are, and that we know that the no level to no, you know, the low level to no level characterization is a lot more accurate than the guys who are going to chew through hydraulic wires to bring down a plane characterization. Um, the other thing that's happened is that attorneys have been able to visit. And, you know, this has been, uh, you know, a, a really big breakthrough for, for, I suppose, two reasons. One is that psychologically, for the detainees themselves, it's been a tremendous relief. It's broken that cycle of dependence on the interrogators that uh, the military has tried so hard um, to create. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are people there, dozens of people who have had children born outside of, uh, you know, since they, since they, you know, went in, basically, that their wives at home were pregnant, and they've never seen these kids, and they're two or three years old now. They've had loved ones die. Um, you know, they're, you know, basically news from the outside world has been, you know, pretty sparse, uh, you know, if at all. If, if they've managed to get a letter to, through through the Red Cross or, you know, some, something coming in, in, in the reverse direction, and it's, it's been pretty uncommon. And, you know, it's interesting that the, um, you know, the lawyers going down there all assume that their conversations are being surveilled, and so they typically don't talk about things like the circumstances of the capture. Instead, you know, what they're doing is really, you know, mainly trying to win the trust of these people, which is a difficult thing since the military has sent interrogators in in the guise of doctors, in the guise of psychiatrists, in the guise of human rights lawyers, as detainees have told us when we've been down there. Um, 
just to give you a little sense of what it's like to work on these sort of cases, um, you know, first of all, you need to get a security clearance, uh, which means you need to be a U.S. citizen to get down there. Um, and, uh, and one of the interesting things is that anything that the detainee tells you is considered um, uh, presumptively classified. Um, so the process for writing down notes about your conversations is you can write them down at Guantanamo and then you have to turn them over to the government before you fly back. And they're turned over to a, a Department of Justice clearance team, which is walled off from the rest of the Department of Justice, supposedly. They just review the things independently and don't go and tell John Ashcroft or whoever else what you wrote in your notes. Um, but after they're declassified by that team, then you can go home with them to your office and work with them. But let's say you go home and you have some idea in your head about a good legal claim to make based on some facts that the person told you. Well, that sort of thing can't be scribbled down in your notepad next to your nightstand because it's, again, presumptively classified until they review it. So you have to fly to Washington, D.C., um, type it up in the computers that are in a secure facility that the government has set up for this purpose, and then it has to go through the clearance team once again. <laughs> Um, it's one of the many Alice in Wonderland sort of um, uh, aspects of, uh, of representing people in this sort of situation. Um, uh, I thought it escaped me a little bit on the, uh, on the second point here. Um, remind me, remind me what the, we were just talking about the psychological dependency. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, come back to it. Um, in any event, uh, uh, you know, obviously you know, what Congress has done is, uh, it, is you know going to create really serious problems with the you know ability to get down there and visit uh, detainees. Uh, uh, you know we have we've been operating in a situation where the Detainee Treatment Act was passed in 2005 and presumed to sort of cut off uh, jurisdiction for any um, any sort of future habeas petitions that were filed. But it seemed that the compromise had been reached with Senator Levin to to preserve claims for any um, petitions that had been filed in the past. Um, so we thought that most of our cases were safe, but the, the newest bill that was passed last week and is just awaiting President Bush's signature um, really purports to cut off all federal court jurisdiction. Um, it provides a really broad definition of what an enemy combatant is. It basically says that anyone who's materially supported hostilities against the United States um, is an enemy combatant, and if they're an alien, they can basically be detained without any right of access to the federal courts whatsoever. Um, the, uh, the, you know, one of the, two of the other sort of outstanding kind of characteristics of this bill are that it immunizes all federal officials from uh, any sort of liability in federal court for things that have been done there. So, for instance, you know, civil lawsuits against psychiatrists and medical professionals um, who participated in, in these activities um, there are all going to be tossed out of court now. Um, uh, same thing for civil suits against, um, against government officials. Um, for wrongful detention there. So, for instance, our two English detainees um, filed a civil suit. It was de dismissed um, on other grounds uh, before this new act passed, um, but now all those things are going to be cut off at the knees. Um, I'll mention one other thing, which is what I've forgotten about before, about the, the value of attorney visits. Um, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Uyghurs who were detained in Guantanamo. There are about 16 men um, from this uh, Muslim ethnic minority in western China. Um, they speak a really obscure Turkic language called Uyghur. Um, only about six million uh, speakers in the world. Um, and as I was saying before, you need to get security clearance for yourself as a lawyer before you can go down and visit um, clients there. But you also need to get security clearance for a translator, which means you need to find a translator who's a U.S. citizen. Um, now, for these Uyghur detainees, um, they had a, you know, a law firm that you know, we, have, we have sort of coordinated a project whereby about 500 lawyers from 300 different law firms are working on individual habeas petitions, um, which is really useful because that means that they can finance flying to the base, which is expensive, and also finance translators, which costs quite a bit of money, about $1,500 a day, even at pro bono rates sometimes. Um, but for the Uyghurs, there was a real specific problem, which was there are only 6 million speakers in the world. There aren't that many in the U.S., and it was almost impossible to find a U.S. citizen. We found one, but she said that she had been working for the government, which kind of ruled her out. Um, and she helped us try to find some others. Uh, was a very friendly person. Um, but, uh, you know, finally, somebody, somebody was found and went through the clearance process, and the lawyer managed to fly down there and actually meet with his Uyghur clients. And what they told him was kind of astonishing. They said that, look, you know, all of us have been cleared by the military panel. We went through this military panel that was created after the Supreme Court ruled in the case, and they said that there was no reason for us to have ever been detained. And yet, it had been months and months and months since this military panel. In fact, these guys weren't even being interrogated anymore at the point where the, um, there was a lawyer finally flew down there to meet them with the translator. Um, and yet, they just sat there um, forever because they had no right of access to the federal courts, and therefore nobody outside of the base had any way of finding out that they had actually been exonerated by their military panel. And, of course, the U.S. government didn't want to send them back to China where bad things might happen to them. And uh, as a, you know, basically, as a consequence, 
one, of the fact that the Uyghur minority is heavily persecuted in China, and two, the fact that the United States had chosen to detain these guys for three years, which makes them inherently suspect anywhere in the world that they're sent to. Um, at this point, five of them have been sent after much uh, diplomatic arm wringing of the Albanian government. Five of them have been sent to Albania, where they're basically living in a kind of, um, you know, um, in pretty run-down conditions in, you know, something that's a little bit short of a detention camp, but they basically can't leave the grounds that they're on. So they're essentially detained in Albania, in a country where, you know, nobody speaks a language and they have no community and so forth to rely on. There's a big, you know, there's a nice-sized Uyghur um, refugee community in California, and they were hopeful that the U.S. would grant asylum to these people. But, of course, it's difficult, um, you know, to justify holding someone for three or four years when you then turn around and grant them asylum in your country. And it really kind of points to another little tidbit that the newspaper reporters dug out of unnamed sources, which is, you know, basically that, uh, that nobody, the reason a lot of these guys are still there is that nobody wants to be the one who takes responsibility by signing the release papers. So, you know, Oh, sure, go ahead. Were these people um, rounded up in China? Um, no, they, um, a lot of the people actually leave, um, you know, Uyghur is a, is a Turkic language, um, you know, much like a lot of the languages in Soviet Central Asia and, uh, and also Turkey. And um, so most of them find their way to Turkey to try to get work, and, and they usually go over land. And so these guys, I think, were probably somewhere in northern Pakistan um, when they were captured, um, you know, sort of working their way along something kind of close to the old Silk Road route, basically. Um, to get to, you know, something on the edge of Europe where there was more work and a little more freedom, I suppose. So, um, so you know, that's, that's basically what we've, you know, what we're facing right now in Guantanamo, the prospect of attorney um, visits being cut off um, and an awful lot of litigation over really abstract issues of whether or not Congress can, in this situation, cut off the right to habeas corpus, even as it applies outside of the United States. Um, so a lot of complicated legal issues coming. Um, one other thing that's interesting is um, the measures that this bill um, takes to um, allow coerced evidence into the actual trials for people who are charged in the military court system with terrorism or with, you know, sort of war crimes of some sort or another. Um, one of the interesting things about this, this bill is that it would allow any coerced um, confessions that occurred before the passage of 2005's Detainee Treatment Act. Um, into evidence, uh, that you can't challenge um, the admissibility of evidence in one of these military trials, uh, one of these, you know, military commission trials, basically on the grounds that it was, it was you know, tortured out of the person, which is really amazing, because again, just to go back to our two Englishmen, um, uh, Iqbal and Rasul, uh, they actually signed confessions that said that they were um, the two figures who appeared in the back of a sort of, um, you know, low-quality videotape of Osama bin Laden at a terrorist training camp in Afghanistan. Now, everyone knew when this videotape had been shot, and it turned out that MI5, the British uh, Domestic Intelligence Service, had hard evidence that these guys were actually working at jobs in an electronics store and elsewhere um, in England at the time that this tape was shot in Afghanistan. And they relayed this information to the U.S. several times, and it was ignored um, because the intelligence agents on the U.S. side wanted to be able to prove that these guys were someone who had trained with bin Laden. And now, you know, our clients were released um, into English custody, um, uh, and then 24 hours later, um, England released them. Are free now and, and you know, pursuing their civil suit against, um, against high-level U.S. officials um, for their wrongful detention there in Guantanamo. But the interesting thing about it is that it shows that the you know, coercive interrogation, as the U.S. puts it, or torture, as we put it, um, you know, tends to produce false results. That people, as we've known from a long historical experience with torture, will say anything to get it to stop. And these guys made demonstrably false confessions, confessions that the U.S. knew were false, and yet the act that our Congress passed last week and that our president is going to sign into law in a week or two would basically allow the admissibility of these sorts of confessions um, uh, and would allow these people to be sentenced to death based on that kind of evidence, um, depending on the charges against them. You know, to give another example, a person that we represent, Maher Arar, whose story you're probably familiar with. Um, he's a Canadian citizen. He was flying home to Canada from vacation with his family in Tunisia, um, switching planes at JFK, was pulled aside by the U.S., interrogated for 12 days there and then deported not to, um, not to Canada, the country of his citizenship, but rather to Syria, um, expressly for the purpose of being tortured, which did happen to him for 10 months. And then the Syrians released him um, with the Syrian foreign minister announcing on 60 Minutes, look, there was no reason for uh, you know, him to have ever been sent to us. He has no connection to terrorism. Um, a Canadian inquest, um, after months and months of inquiry and, uh, and dozens of witnesses, came to the same conclusion a couple of weeks ago, that Arar had no link to terrorism. There was no reason to suspect him whatsoever 
um, of a link to terrorism. And here's a completely innocent man who was shipped off to Syria and under torture confessed um, to being, you know, um, to having trained um, with al-Qaeda. Um, and again, under the bill that was just passed and is going to become law pretty soon, this sort of thing is going to be admissible in military court proceedings against him. Um, so that's, that's roughly where we're at with Guantanamo. That's a little summary of the couple of years that have passed since, um, since the Supreme Court ruled on this. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's been a little bit more of a downward spiral in progress. Let me just say a few quick words about um, our NSA case, and then you know, hopefully we can jump to questions from you guys about any of our litigation. i would be happy to answer anything I can about any of our cases. Um, but this NSA case, you know, the, um, the New York Times broke the story that the NSA had been carrying out um, uh, warrantless surveillance of international calls and possibly um, something, even, some sort of even more sort of diffuse surveillance, uh, you know, approaching data mining, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, the president admitted, uh, you know, shortly thereafter um, that, that in fact, uh, you know, he had ordered this to be done after 9-11, um, claimed that it was a targeted program, targeted at communications where one party on the line is outside of the United States and one inside, and where one party on the line is, uh, has some link to terrorism of, of some unspecified nature, um, and admitted that these were warrantless um, wiretaps, that they had never gone to, to a judge um, for the judge to weigh the evidence of whether or not the person was associated with terrorism and therefore worthy of being a target of surveillance. Um, now, you know, I, I like to tell people that um, usually when you start a case, you know a lot about the facts and you're wondering about where the court is going to come out on the law, and here it's the exact opposite. Um, it's pretty clear um, from the, uh, the post-Watergate uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act passed in 1978 um, that any sort of surveillance like this that falls outside of the Wiretap Act or the FISA Act um, is, uh, is illegal. Um, in fact, that it's a felony. Um, Congress said specifically that those two acts are the exclusive means for carrying out surveillance, and those are both warrant processes. Um, FISA, in particular, is a warrant process that's used for intelligence gathering, um, for gathering information where the target of the surveillance is thought to be an agent of a foreign power, whether it's a foreign country or a terrorist group or a foreign political organization, whatever. Um, and FISA is a very easy process for the government to use. Um, the government's asked for 19,000 warrants from the FISA court in the 26 or 27 years since the statute was passed, it's had five rejected. Um, so for us, you know, again, uh, this is a sort of situation where instead of the usual where we know what the facts are and we're wondering where the law is going to come out, here we're really, you know, we knew what the law was. We're wondering what the facts are. We're wondering who they were listening to and why they chose to do it, given that the FISA process was so easy, um, you know, to, for them to use. Um, among other things, FISA has a retroactive warrant provision. Um, the government can put an emergency warrant um, wiretap into place um, on day one, and then within three days they can go to the court to get retroactive approval for it. Um, you know, the administration made the argument that the, the necessity for putting wiretaps in place quickly was, their, was the thing that led them to carry out this program. That was their initial argument, at least. Um, but again, you know, that's, that's belied by the fact that there is a retroactive process and nothing is really any faster than a retroactive warrant. And then also by, I think, some recent experience where the Times reported that in the, in the week prior to the London um, airplane bombing arrest recently, uh, that the government had sought dozens of FISA warrants and that the process had worked pretty smoothly, that, that there was a huge spike in activity in the last week as uh, the British intelligence wanted the U.S. to try to gather information um, and support eventual prosecutions of these guys. And of course the U.S. wanted to do that above board so that the evidence wouldn't get kicked out of um, you know, foreign countries' courts, I suppose. Um, so, you know, I guess given that, given that most of the explanations here don't really hold water, um, uh, you know, for why they would have gone around the process, We've, uh, you know, people often ask us, you know, what do you, what, what, do you, what do you think they're doing and why do you think they chose to get around what's a very easy process for them to use? And I suppose there are two main explanations. Um, you know, one of them is that they may be doing something that isn't targeted surveillance at all. Um, you know, the, the premise of, uh, of the warrant process, um, you know, which is sort of based in the Fourth Amendment's requirements are that, you know, if you want, if law enforcement wants to carry out surveillance against someone, um, they have to have a quantum of evidence that shows that the person is worthy of suspicion. Um, for a criminal warrant under Title III, some evidence that shows probable cause that they have been associated with criminal activity. For a FISA warrant, probable cause that they're an agent of a foreign power. Um, and they bring that to the court, and the court reviews it, decides as an impartial referee whether or not it passes muster, and then issues a warrant. And the warrant is supposed to be a real specific document that puts limits on the, the discretion of the law enforcement agents who are carrying out the wiretap. It tells you, you know, what lines you can listen in on, what conversations you can listen to, and where you've got to turn the recording off and so forth. And it also usually specifies that, that privileged conversations, attorney-client conversations and that sort of thing, um, can't be listened to or recorded at all. Um, 
So, you know, one, one thing that we've, you know, thought might be going on here is that really they're not carrying out a targeted program at all, that they're doing something much more like data mining, which is basically, you know, something where they are essentially trying to listen in um, on every phone call, perhaps using voice recognition technology with computers. You know, people seem to think, the experts that we talk to say that maybe they can pick out a single word in a single language at this point by, you know, even managing to scan every single international call. And certainly with email, that's a much easier process. They could scan every email around um, for combinations of words or that sort of thing. Now, that kind of data mining program is so broad and so close to what the, the founders of Revolutionary Generation would have called a general warrant, the warrant to search anywhere and everywhere um, for a particular type of evidence um, that isn't targeted at someone where there's specific evidence that leads us to think that they are suspect. Um, that kind of general warrant is so incompatible with any kind of warrant process, with any kind of court process, that it may be that the reason they didn't go through FISA was that this is what they're trying to do, um, you know, carry out some form of surveillance essentially on the entire country. Um, and this kind of thing also would be pretty politically unpopular, because we saw the reaction to John Poindexter's total information awareness proposal in 2003, um, where he was basically talking about doing some sort of massive compilation of both surveillance data and kind of um, private, um, you know, sort of economic transaction records, calling records, whatever, compiling them all into one big database for the same sort of purpose. And that, that really, I think, left a bad taste in the public's mouth, and Congress, as a result, defunded um, the greater part of the total information pro awareness program which they, you know, quickly redubbed the Terrorist Information Awareness um, Program, sort of the way they've dubbed this NSA program, the Terrorist Surveillance Program, and refer to it as the TSP and all their board filings. Um, in any event, so that's, that's one explanation for what, what might be going on here, is that it's data mining. And I think the second one is much simpler, and maybe more nefarious, which is that they may be trying to do the sort of surveillance that, um, that even conservative FISA court judges wouldn't approve of in a warrant process. Um, namely surveillance of attorneys talking to their clients or journalists talking to their sources. You can imagine reporters doing the work on the war in Iraq or calling people over there. Um, you know, their sources may be, you know, much less likely to talk to them given the fact that the government may be, you know, doing this essentially lawless form of surveillance um, uh, on any international call. Um, so, you know, with that, that's, that's where the case is. Um, the government has asserted the, you know, challenges both to our standing, um, you know, to bring this suit. We obviously, we claim that since we represent so many people like Mr. Arar or the Guantanamo detainees overseas, who are people the government claims are associated with terrorism, that our international communications with them fall squarely into the category that the NSA uh, admits that it's listening to. And we feel that they've admitted enough about the program, saying that it basically falls under the, the, the legal definition of surveillance that's governed by FISA, um, and that yet they're not seeking warrants for it. And we feel they've admitted enough publicly um, that we should win the case without any discovery or any more sort of factual um, uh, elaboration. We don't need a trial or anything like that. So we filed for summary judgment, and the government in response has filed a similar motion to end the case quickly, um, claiming that the state secrets privilege applies. Basically, um, they had John Negroponte, um, come in and, and, you know, cabinet level officer, director of national intelligence and sign an affidavit saying, you know, look, um, this, this program is so secretive that any information about it um, that got out to the public um, uh, would cause grave harm to the national security. And since there is a risk if this litigation goes forward that such information would become public, even if I submit it to the, you know, for the judge's eyes only, in camera ex parte, you know, even if the other side's attorneys don't get to review it, um, that risk is there, and therefore the court has no option but to terminate this case. And so obviously, you know, our, the reason we filed our summary judgment motion is because it really relies on public admissions um, by government officials, and we feel like there's no way they can claim those are secrets. But those are the issues that are before the judge right now, and, um, and they are, uh, you know, surprisingly complicated. And, uh, you know, the judge in Michigan in the ACLU's case ruled favorably, but in an opinion that got criticized for being a little bit sloppy. We've got a very academic judge, and so we're hoping that he'll issue sort of a watertight opinion that comes to the same conclusion. Um, but that's what we're waiting on. It was just argued on September 5th, and, uh, and now we're keeping our fingers crossed on it. Um, You're listening to a talk uh, given in Anaheim uh, earlier this month by uh, Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, lead, uh, one of the lead attorneys for a number of cases, Shayana Kad. Kadidao, uh, who's uh, representing uh, CCR in various cases uh, over the uh, Bush administration's uh, crackdown on, um, on by the state uh, on uh, people that are, don't sound like they uh, have not committed any crime. Uh, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Let's go on, uh, continue with her, his talk. So with that, I'd love to take any questions that anyone's got. And your first. 
Well, you know, I think that the NSA case really started that sort of talk, um, you know, because it so closely paralleled something that Nixon had done, which was warrantless wiretapping of his uh, domestic um, political opponents, people in the anti-war movement, um, people in the civil rights movement, including Dr. King. Um, you know, on the, you know, we've actually written a book about, um, about impeachment. The publisher actually approached us about it right after the NSA case was filed. And, uh, and there are four articles um, of impeachment, I suppose, in it. One of them is a general sort of claim about violating the separation of powers, about having contempt for the power of the role, institution, constitutional role of Congress and, and the courts as well. Um, I, let's see, what the first charge, well, the second charge is the, the NSA surveillance. Obviously, the third is um, the war in Iraq and essentially conveying false information to the Senate and the American people um, to facilitate um, the war in Iraq. And then the next one is the sort of torture and detention practices. And, you know, they're all, they, they all are, are interesting. I mean, you know, the founders actually said that, um, that conveying false information to the Senate should be an impeachable offense. James Ardell, one of the first Supreme Court justices, said as much um, in those words. Um, you know, because, and it's a, even more the case now, I think, because the president has a special sort of role in terms of information gathering or intelligence. You know, right now the CIA basically reports to the president, same deal essentially with the NSA, and most of the major intelligence gathering agencies go through the presidency. So the president, I think, has a special responsibility to at least not create, you know, knowingly create sort of false factual impressions um, in the Senate to support his, his policy decisions. And the Senate has, you know, constitutionally assigned foreign powers, um, uh, uh, you know, that it's supposed to exercise in a responsible way and can't if it's getting, you know, false information um, uh, on purpose from the president. Um, I think same deal really for the, um, for conveying false information to the American people. You know, the population, is, the voting population is supposed to be a political check on the presidency. Uh, so that's kind of the basis for that charge. You know, on the wiretapping, it's, it's clearly a crime, but, um, you know, it's clear that um, crimes and impeachable offenses, they overlap a little bit, but they are not um, sort of uh, identical sets, you know. There are impeachable offenses that are clearly not crimes, and then there are crimes that aren't necessarily impeachable offenses. The founders thought that abuses of political power, that things that subverted the constitutional structure and division of powers between the three branches or that subverted democracy were really impeachable offenses. And so on the surveillance, I think you're um, in terms of impeachability. Uh, you know, did the president do this because he was trying to stretch the law out um, and do the best he could to protect the American people up to the limit of the law? Uh, we think it's unlikely. Um, or did he do it, you know, to, to listen in on um, attorney-client communications and therefore cut off um, the ability to, to you know, successfully pursue litigation that was going to produce embarrassing information like these factual revelations about who the Guantanamo detainees are. Well, if that's the case, if it was explicit, then I think it is an impeachable offense. Um, but I think, you know, we need to know a little something about motive. Um, you know, so I'll just leave it at that. I mean, the, the book is pretty interesting. Um, it's available real cheap, I think six or seven bucks on Amazon now. So uh, it's called Articles of Impeachment Against President George W. Bush. Um, didn't the uh, Congress just, uh, like with Right. Well, impeachment, you know, is a, is a political remedy. There's no, you know, there's this sort of, you know, an amnesty statute or anything like that can never apply to it. It's always out there. You know, that's what it's intended as, sort of a final check. What was passed in this, um, you know, Military Commissions Act was basically an exemption um, from any, from having to respond in federal court, whether it's, you know, criminal prosecution or civil suits um, uh, in federal court um, for people who are involved with interrogation or detention practices. Uh, you know, and that, that's a pretty broad sweep. You know, here in California, you had uh, medical licensing proceedings against um, uh, one of the people who was the head of the, the uh, medical practice um, at Guantanamo. And, of course, you know, our, our clients reported that they were told when they were gravely ill that they were, you know, not going to receive medical treatment. They were told this by doctors there, um, unless they cooperated with interrogators. And psychiatrists as well seem to have had a pretty detailed role in the whole thing. And there's currently a real contentious process going on in front of the American um, Psychological Association. Um, about whether or not, um, you know, they're going to come out with a strongly worded statement against, um, you know, psychiatrists or, or mental health professionals being involved um, in interrogation situations. Um, and right now, apparently, they are, they are really waffling on that, which is a terrible thing. But you're right. I mean, this, this um, you know, the first thing that came to everyone's mind when we heard about this, uh, this immunity provision was that it sort of reeked of Argentina and Chile. And, and those countries, it didn't work very well for its political end either. So. sites for detention so that their detention wouldn't be questioned 
I, I have I've heard vague things about this, but I really mm-hmm. don't know very much about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some places that we know a lot about because they're big, like Kandahar and Bagram Air Force bases are huge detention centers, and a lot of people have gone from there to Guantanamo, but there are clearly still a lot of prisoners who are, you know, sort of left behind there. Um, you know, among other things, you know, pretty high-level Al-Qaeda person apparently escaped from one of the Afghan prisons that the U.S. was running. Um, U.S. or maybe Air, the Afghan government actually administering. Um, in any event, so we know about that. Um, you know, there are always been these rumors that there are black sites everywhere else. You know, you've heard the, uh, I think Dana Priest of the Washington Post um, did a story um, about, uh, you know, um, the fact that there have been detention centers in Eastern Europe in several countries which are seeking admission to the EU and it's going to become a big issue for them uh, in terms of their compliance with the EU's sort of minimum human rights requirements. Um, I believe Poland and maybe Romania um, were on that list and then Thailand also. Um, you know, Diego Garcia, a British um, sort of naval station where the U.S. leases the, the, the grounds for its military base there from, from England. Um, that's another area. Right, that's a place that, mm-hmm. yeah, Jordan and Syria, I mean, we know about Arar being, you know, sent to Jordan and then from there to Syria um, and being tortured in both places. Um, so, you know, there, there clearly are, um, there clearly is a process of rendition um, that the government doesn't really want to say that much about. Um, you know, whether or not they are sort of, you know, semi-permanent facilities that we're running ourselves or, you know, that other people are sort of running for us. I mean, I suspect that there probably are. I mean, the president denied it that these places existed until he basically announced that he was moving the 14 high-value um, detainees, including, you know, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to Guantanamo. And so, you know, that, that's an admission where there had previously been an explicit sort of um, so these are secret uh, detention camps, but, but something is known about them. Well, Bagram and Kandahar, for sure, uh, there's some good evidence of that. And we actually filed um, a petition on behalf of a number of people who we think are still detained um, at, uh, at Bagram. Um, uh, and the, the basis for that is essentially that um, uh, you know, there have been people who moved through Guantanamo who were in Bagram previously and are willing to serve as um, what are called next friends. Uh, basically, you know, under the, uh, under the law, um, you know, habeas, uh, you know, if the king had you locked up in the Tower of London, you obviously couldn't file your own court papers. Um, uh, so, you know, the law has always been that, you know, your close associates or your family, for sure, could come in and file papers on behalf of you. And then the, the court would demand that you be produced in court and that the executive come in as well to justify the legality of your detention. Um, so you always need that next friend. But, um, you know, one of the innovations, I guess, that we've been using is to have other detainees serve as next friends. So when the Detainee Treatment Act was about to pass in 2005, other detainees were giving over, you know, lists of other people there who they were, you know, in sort of the same cell block with, and they, they claim, you know, this person has said that he wants a case filed on his behalf in federal court. And so, from, you know, with that, you can sort of run with it. How many attorneys want the CCR, and how do you decide on what cases you're going to take on it? Well, when I started, it was six. Now it's 11, and I think we're going to hire someone next week and probably another two people before the end of the year. So it's been kind of rapidly growing, and a good, you know, I mean, close to half of that is, um, is Guantanamo work at this point. Um, you know, then a number of, uh, of legal workers as well. But it's a small organization. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things that's happened here is, you know, when we first filed the case in 2002, nobody wanted a piece of it. Um, we needed somebody to file um, the actual papers down in Washington, D.C., because nobody at the center was admitted to the, the D.C. bar. Um, at the time, and you needed somebody, you know, to, to be your local counsel, essentially. And it took a couple of weeks to find someone. And this is even, you know, looking among people who are, you know, capital defense um, attorneys who are used to dealing with clients who are accused of the very worst sorts of, um, of acts. I mean, people were scared of it back then. But after the Supreme Court victory, you know, one law firm had been hired for half a million dollars to bring the um, uh, a petition on behalf of the Kuwaiti detainees. And so they filed their case a bit after ours. Sherman and Sterling went up with it, and it became a huge PR coup for them, recruiting law students in particular, because three law students worked on the case. They had their photographs taken in that huge sort of photograph on the Supreme Court steps with all the counsel who worked on it. Um, so everyone else started to want a piece of it. And so at this point, there are you know, a couple hundred law firms and about 500 lawyers total working on the mass of, uh, of individual petitions, um, which is a great thing from our standpoint, because it's a real radical organization. We haven't often had relationships with law firms, but now Guantanamo is kind of a set of relationships that allows us to build, you know, kind of a working kind of personal relationship with people. You know, folks can see that we're, you know, sort of legit lawyers and we have interesting things to work on and that we're competent. And then, you know, at least to other things. So we have now some law firms working on FOIA um, cases, Freedom of Information Act cases relating to, you know, the torture and detention practices. And, you know, hopefully it'll spread out to a lot of the other work that we've done in the past as well. I'll start here yeah. and move that way. Oh, thanks. Uh, how many people are 
still at Guantanamo, and you have a list of all the names. Well, they, they released a big list of names um, at some point in the last year. Um, I believe it's right now it's about 450, um, but it's always tough to keep track of you know, the, the total on a running basis. Um, but that's where we're at right now. I believe about 260 have been released um, in the past. And, uh, and out of that 450, I'm guessing that roughly about 40 are people who have been um, you know, sort of uh, absolved by the, the, the military panels, the combatant status review tribunals. Um, I know that there were at least 39, um, and that was, a, that was a total that was before they were all completed. Um, so certainly a lot of folks sitting there at the low security um, wing in the camp, there are five different sort of security levels apparently now. Um, as the place has become more of kind of a permanent prison, they've you know, constructed everything from super high security to you know, sort of you know, white collar criminal type level. Um, and, uh, and there are definitely people there who are just waiting to be released. Um, uh, you know, the Afghan government has been negotiating to take back custody of, of their nationals there. Um, so you know, there, there are a lot of people who fall into a lot of different categories for sure. Not exactly sure, but it's, it's quite a bit longer than, than you'd expect. Um, I think it's probably in the dozens um, at this point. You know, there are definitely people who are captured in Kosovo and Zambia and uh, I believe somebody from Gabon, um, uh, you know, all through Soviet Central Asia. Um, most of the Europeans were released by the time the case got up to the Supreme Court in the first shot, but it, you know, that's basically because of diplomatic pressure. And there are certainly lawyers um, you know, in, our, in our group of you know, several hundred who believe that really diplomatic pressure is the only thing that's ever going to get these people out um, and that the way to get um, you know, that diplomatic pressure created is to get stories of abuse out rather than to, you know, prove that individual people have no link to terrorism because it's, you know, sort of proving a negative, essentially, um, whereas, you know, getting stories of abuse out is, um, is something that's more tangible and easier to do and also doesn't create these sort of attorney-client um, privilege problems that, that happen when you're interviewing someone in a circumstance where you're pretty sure that you're being subject to surveillance. Would you clarify what the court decision was with regard to habeas corpus as it pertains to legal residents and citizens? Is there a distinction? And how did that come down? Right. Um, well, you know, the Hamdi decision that, that you know, really um, sort of governs the, the rights of citizens captured on the battlefield is a real fractured opinion. It's hard to say that there's anything kind of coherent that came out of that. Um, other than the notion that Hamdi himself was entitled to visit with a lawyer. And once he sort of visited with a the lawyer, they basically decided to send him back. I mean, this was a guy who was accused of, you know, fighting on, with the Taliban, but it, he denied that. Um, you know, he was allegedly, you know, sort of fleeing the battlefield, um, carrying an AK-47. Was a U.S. citizen by birth. His parents were Saudis and they moved back when he was three or something like that. Um, you know, the argument um, basically ran like this, that Congress had passed a law in 1970, um, uh, you know, essentially designed to avoid a repeat of the, the Japanese-American internments that said any citizen um, can only be detained pursuant to an act of Congress. And the intention was that you had to charge someone criminally under the you know, U.S. Code with a defined crime. Um, and so for someone like Hamdi, that crime would have been the crime of treason, bearing arms against the United States. It's there in the statutory code. But the Constitution sets a very high uh, evidentiary threshold for convicting someone of treason because the founders thought this was very frequently a political crime that the king had charged against individuals. So they wanted to have two witnesses it's sort of built in, you know, written out right there in the constitutional text. Um, so I think the justices, the more pragmatic justices, including Stephen Breyer, decided that was a little bit too high a threshold. And so they said, no, you know, the authorization to use military force in Afghanistan, that was an act of Congress. And they detained him pursuant to that act. You don't have to actually charge him with anything criminally, even though there's this ready criminal charge of treason right there in the books. Um, so, you know, we had four, four justices thinking that that was okay and that, you know, maybe he could imply it. I suppose that he might have some military process would be enough to deal with him, um, you know, just like any other prisoner of war. Um, and Justice Thomas saying that he basically had no rights. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was a little bit unsettled as to citizens who were captured on the battlefield. Um, similarly, the Padilla case, or I guess he calls himself Padilla, um, uh, you know, U.S. citizen arrested at O'Hare Airport, charged with, you know, initially, um, well, never charged with this, but, you know, initially the accusation was, um, uh, in public statements um, by Ashcroft and others, that he was planning to blow up a dirty bomb. Um, and then later that morphed into some other accusations that he was planning to, you know, rent an apartment and turn on the gas and then blow up apartment buildings um, uh, in that fashion. Um, and then that essentially morphed into, you know, he had you know, had terrorist training and was providing military, um, uh, sorry, material support um, to terrorist organization. Now, he was finally charged um, with an actual crime before his case managed to get up to the Supreme Court a second time. So that also is sort of uncertain, you know, somebody accused of terrorism, accused of being an enemy combatant, fighting with someone with whom we're, uh, you know, war, um, you know, Al-Qaeda, 
um, what are his legal status, what, what are his legal rights as an enemy combatant. That wasn't really settled by the Supreme Court in the final analysis either. Um, you know, as far as what the Rasul case said about the rights of our um, Guantanamo clients, well, it said basically that Guantanamo is an area where the U.S. has total control and jurisdiction, and that for um, purposes of the habeas statute, um, that uh, these detainees fall within the rights of the habeas statute, um, uh, that they can file challenges to their detention um, against custodians as defendants who are, you know, inside the United States. Um, so that's a limited ruling, you know, it didn't say whether or not um, if the habeas statute itself was basically repealed as to these people, which is what's happened now, um, whether or not they have some sort of fundamental constitutional right um, to challenge their detention by the executive in front of a court, some constitutional form of habeas outside of the statute. That's really, you know, one of the many questions that's going to go up now, another is whether or not the suspension clause applies, it's the clause of the Constitution that says, um, Congress can only suspend the writ of habeas corpus um, when the public safety requires it in times of, um, you know, um, invasion or rebellion. Um, and, uh, you, know, is this a, you know, is this a time of invasion? Does that even apply outside of the United States? Um, you know, is this a temporary suspension um, in, in any sense of the word? These are all the sorts of questions that are going to have to be hashed out. Um, uh, and hopefully the case, you know, will get to the Supreme Court quicker than it took last time. It took two years again. Um, before the court, you know, heard and decided the case, and, and that was, you know, a time window when these guys didn't have any chance to see lawyers, and when the outside world had no idea what was going on there, when the newspapers reported on these guys as 600 suspected terrorists, you know, when we now know, you know, that basically, you know, about two dozen of them are probably going to ever be charged with having done anything, and the rest of them are waiting to be released at some less politically embarrassing moment in time. Um, do you run into, um, what kind of difficulty do you run into when um, the American people are exposed to and shocked by what's going on and then um, trying to get them to focus on that some action has to be taken and then some other scandal happens in the administration where everybody's attention is diverted from that into another scandal, then the minute people get horrified by that and there's groups formed and we're going to take some action, then some other scandal breaks out and so it, it seems difficult to get anybody to take any action on anything or get unified in anything because we're putting out so many different fires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's sort of the, the Foley question, I suppose, and then part of it is the, the sort of rampant illegality question that, you know, there's a certain level of fatigue maybe with, uh, with lawless behavior and, uh, you know, to some extent that may be their goal, you know, and things like the NSA program you know, we have, you know, speculated that maybe, you know, what's happening here is that this is just part of a long-term agenda to advance executive power in the abstract, that people like Cheney went around in December and January saying, look, there's been an erosion of executive power in the, you know, in the wake of the Watergate era, and we've overshot the mark, we're a weaker country as a result of this, you know, we need a strong executive in this kind of world today, um, and, uh, and we want to, you know, make bald assertions of executive power because we want to advance that agenda, we want the courts to make friendly rulings on this sort of thing so we can keep doing this sort of thing in the in the future. I mean, I think, you know, politically in terms of organizing, um, you know, I think my agenda in talking about these cases is to basically try to demonstrate to people um, that the practices don't make us safer, you know, because I think the gut level, um, you know, reaction of people to all this stuff, whether it's a wiretapping or these detention practices or even torture, is that at some level, um, you know, we are trading off a lot of, a lot of civil liberties, but we're getting some small marginal improvement. In, uh, in security, that we're getting a little bit safer, um, and that they're willing to, to make a bad deal in terms of trading off a huge amount of liberty, um, especially someone else's liberty if they're minorities or non-citizens or whoever, um, as long as there's that small gain. And so I think what we really need to prove, and it's, it's not difficult, thankfully, in this situation, is to prove that just from a law enforcement standpoint that this stuff doesn't make us safer. Um, you know, so you can, you know, if you get out there and talk about the facts about how these Guantanamo detainees have a, none of them you know, basically, um, uh, or anyone of interest, you know, that there's a small, small, small fraction, um, you know, who we've had any reason to detain, yet we've thrown a huge amount of law enforcement resources into interrogating them. We've alienated the rest of the world and convinced populations, you know, whole countries and minority populations at home that law enforcement is their enemy. Well, that's a tangible loss um, in terms of our security. And I think you can make a real coherent and simple argument that we're less safe as well as less free from that. You know, same way with the wiretapping. Um, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times reported that, you know, the NSA was turning over thousands of leads, um, alleged leads to the FBI and forcing them to investigate them and that they would all turn out to be does, that agents would get a stack of a thousand phone numbers and two weeks later after having investigated them, they'd have nothing. Um, that essentially, you know, this was a huge sort of false positive program, um, you know, where the, by allowing 
you know, the NSA to search without any evidence um, that led you to led them to suspect the people they were listening to, um, that they basically, you know, turned up nothing. And that's sort of the historical pattern with warrantless wiretapping. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, I'd like to say that, that the, the probable cause requirement, the requirement that you go to a court first with some evidence that leads you to suspect the target, but that's there for two reasons. One reason is to protect innocent people from being surveilled, but the other reason is to make sure that law enforcement focuses its efforts on threats that are real. Um, it's a way of ensuring of the courts being sort of an oversight and accountability agency for law enforcement, an outside referee that really, you know, makes sure that, um, that they're using their resources in an efficient manner. Um, you know, and that's, that's part of what checks and balances are all about. People may have this gut level instinct in the law enforcement context, but checks and balances are about slowing down law enforcement, about hamstringing it, and that that's a luxury that we can only afford when we aren't under threat from terrorists domestically who are, you know, bent on killing as many people as they can. Um, but, you know, the reality is that checks and balances are there to make sure that, um, you know, each group is doing a good job within our government. Um, it's, a, it's a form of oversight within government, and I think we've got to remind people of that sort of simple, you know, elementary school level civics lesson. That's in turn about what might happen if uh, they succeed in packing the courts in the United States and pretty much closing off that venue. Um, like Belgium has, like, universal jurisdiction. We have the a couple of European courts, EU courts, there's an EU court that's getting started, OAS Human Rights Court. The 1993 Vienna Conference and Program for Action resulted in the UN Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, but Mary Robinson, I think, was doing a good job, stepped, stepped on some imperialist toes, though, I guess. So they got rid of her, but I was wondering, first of all, what kind of help you're getting from the UN? And whether thought it was a good idea to have uh, established a UN Human Rights Court that would have jurisdiction, you know, universal jurisdiction everywhere. Uh, that could be accomplished. Maybe it's politically difficult. And to what degree these other courts might fill in, at least for their own nationals, or maybe extend jurisdiction kind of like the Belgian court did, even though they backed up under, under political pressure too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, you know, it was, a, it was the long-term dream of the United States at the Nuremberg trials to basically create international law you know, a lot of the other powers, particularly the Soviets, wanted to just execute these high-level Nazis. The U.S. wanted to create something that would last and that would, you know, be applicable in future um, sort of, you know, cases of massive human rights violations. And, and we've really kind of turned away from that, and I think it's very doubtful that we would ever submit um, voluntarily to the jurisdiction of some sort of universal court. But that's not to say that these universal jurisdiction laws don't have an effect. I mean, we, um, along with the German lawyer Bernard Kallick, um, filed um, a complaint with the prosecutor um, in Germany um, uh, under their new universal jurisdiction law. You know, the Belgian one was redrawn to be much more narrow uh, to require certain links to Belgium um, uh, in order, you know, in order to sort of placate the fears of, um, of foreign officials that they were going to be subject to prosecution if they moved through Belgium. Um, but the, the German statute is, is new and still broadly written, and so we submitted this uh, this document, um, you know, sort of going over Rumsfeld and General Sanchez and other folks' is, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, participation in, in, in human rights violations in, in Iraq. And, uh, and the prosecutor, you know, sort of sat on it for quite a long time, mulling over whether or not to do something with it. Um, and the great thing about it was that Donald Rumsfeld was scheduled to attend a military conference in Germany and, you know, basically was telling the Germans, look, I'm not coming if you don't um, give me some clarity on this uh, universal jurisdiction law. <laughs> now, unfortunately, they announced a couple days before um, he was scheduled to come to the conference that they weren't going to go forward with um, prosecuting him. Uh, you know, so, um, so he ended up attending. Um, but, you know, we managed to put the fear of God into him for a little while, and we are working on, you know, essentially a refiling with more detail. And obviously, an awful lot of U.S. military officials moved through bases in Germany. It would be a great inconvenience to them, at least, at the very least, um, for this sort of thing to be flowing out there. Um, you know, so we can, you know, keep our fingers crossed that Germany holds on to a really broadly worded universal jurisdiction law. If anyone's going to do it, they ought to, right? And, um, and uh, you know, that at the very least, we can make life difficult. Um, you know, I was reading a story about the end of the Libyan embargo and their decision to cooperate um, with the U.S. in intelligence matters post 9-11. And, you know, one of the things about it, apparently, is that the, the economic sanctions made it very difficult for the elites in Libya to send their kids overseas. Um, they couldn't send them to, to universities in the West. They couldn't take vacations and so forth. Um, you know, eventually that got to them. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe making Germany, um, you know, a place where U.S. military officials have to fear landing um, will have a little bit of the same effect. We can only hope. I, I know you're going to have to be going here. Do you want to take one more question? Sure. Okay. 
Um, if any, you can't just hands up, but what we'll do is, is that there'll be additional, there's like additional information on the desk for guys to say constitutional rights. You'll take two. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'll take two. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, as long as it's okay. One basic question, where do we go from here? Right. Well, you know, I mean, there are plenty of issues to be litigated, and, uh, and we're going to keep fighting them out. Um, you know, uh, that's, uh, you know, I think, um, you, know, I, you know, when I try to go speak to large crowds or on the radio or whatever, um, you know, I try to make this, this point and relentlessly about our cases that we are less safe um, in a tangible way and purely a law enforcement, um, purely from a law enforcement perspective we are less safe as a result of these practices because that kind of cracks the veneer that people have over them that whatever else they may think of them and from a moral basis whether they think they're immoral and un-American you know they, they feel that at least at the very least the government is doing it because it makes us more safe and I'm not talking about more safe than, or that we're, that we're less safe in the sense that other people in other countries hate us and want to attack us and that's certainly a legitimate perspective but it's hard to make that argument and seem like you're not on the side of the people who want to attack us um, you know um, and arguing for the legitimacy of that but if you can argue from a law enforcement perspective that this stuff doesn't work that it's been tried over and over historically in crises that you know sort of broad mass detentions preventative detentions racial profiling that it only serves to alienate minority communities and give us the best tips um, against um, you know, sort of criminals from their communities um, that in the past it's worked to, to blow up, you know, to break up terrorist cells here in the United States in the last two decades, um, and that we're losing all of that sort of thing um, by carrying out these practices, and that things like the warrantless wiretapping, you know, lead to, you know, false positives, and that they just don't work. Uh, you've been listening to a talk given by an attorney for the Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, Shayana Kadidao, on um, the Bush administration's... Uh, attacks on um, people in the name of uh, terrorism. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. You can hear the entire talk uh, online at kci.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G, later today. Coming up, uh, Jeff Scott with The Blue Show.